CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it's Friday, uh, April 14th. Man, that was tough. For some reason, I couldn't conjure the right date. Uh, life is just flying by, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, April 14th, 2023. Uh, before I bring on my distinguished guests, I'd like to uh, tell you what's going on in the world. Uh, and this kind of sums it up in many, many ways. A uh, story that broke today in the uh, Washington Post. The world is obsessed with the leak, uh, by the way, of uh, sensitive uh, Pentagon documents uh, by a 21-year-old airman, apparently. Um, uh, the world is obsessed with that. But I am obsessed with different things at the moment. Uh, so uh, this is a story that appeared in the Washington Post about Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott. Uh, and uh, he is, of course, the senator of South Carolina and is thinking about running for president. Uh, and as such, running a president in the Republican primary, you need the Republican nomination before you can run in the general election. That's the one-on-one of politics. So uh, it's a real precarious situation the Republicans find themselves in because in order to secure the Republican nomination, they have to appeal to MAGA, the looniest nutcases, uh, politically speaking, that I've ever lived among. I mean, I know there's always been a lunatic, lunatic fringe in in, uh, in politics in this country, but never have I seen the loonies controlling a major party like MAGA controls the Republicans. Uh, and uh, one of the loony, there's across the board looniness. One has to do uh, with the whole issue of abortion uh, and the need to uh, placate the, the most extreme view on abortion, which is to outlaw it. So Tim Scott is uh, trying to figure out a way uh, to distinguish himself because that view will probably not prevail in a general election. I do not believe you can win an electoral majority in the country right now. Uh, You could definitely not win a majority. So it was like straight up democracy. You cannot win a majority in the country uh, with this Looney Tune view of abortion rights uh, against abortion, trying to outlaw it. but I don't even think you can win an electoral victory anymore. I think that uh, 2020 showed that. Get into that a discussion of that with my distinguished guest. So anyway, so Tim Scott is trying to distinguish himself uh, from the rest of the Republicans to sort of like send a signal. <laughs> it's so weird. He wants to send a signal to swing voters and sort of right-wing Democrats that he can be trusted on is- this issue. But he has to send that signal so subterraneanly that it doesn't offend MAGA that controls the party. So it's a really bizarre situation. He has kind of like speak in nuance and whisper and mumble. <laughs> so here's the, the story that led up to it. Um, this is from an earlier Washington Post article. Uh, Tim Scott has not signed on to a 15-week national ban proposed by his South Carolina colleague, Senator Lindsey Graham. He was asked by a CBS News reporter while campaigning in Iowa on Wednesday if he would back Graham's proposal. He responded that he was, quote, 
100% pro-life. When pressed on whether that was a yes, he said, that's not what I said. (laughs) What a weasel. I said it, but I didn't say it. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. So he's trying to. He's trying to uh, send out two messages. Then Thursday, he confirmed in interviews his support for a federal 20-week ban, saying that wasn't a question of mine at all about the threshold. In other words, he's ducking and dodging. Anyway, uh, apparently, just saying what he said uh, caused so much consternation among MAGA ranks uh, that he felt compelled to issue an all-important clarification. Love it when politicians clarify their positions. And so today, this is the breaking news. Here's Tim Scott now uh, telling you what he thinks about abortion. Quote, if I were president of the United States, I would literally sign the most conservative pro-life legislation that they can get through Congress. Scott uh, said, uh, and to which a reporter said, even if that was six weeks, oh, those reporters trying to nail you on the details. And here's, here's a profiles and courage response from Tim Scott. Quote, I'm not going to talk about six or five or seven or ten. Uh, <laughs> way to go. We, hey, can we... Can we rewrite the book Profiles and Courage to add a chapter on Tim Scott? (laughs) Well, maybe it's five weeks. Could be six weeks. Could be seven weeks. Maybe eight, nine, ten. I don't know. I'm reading the tea leaves, taking polls, doing focus groups. (laughs) You can't pin me down. Uh, Anyway, uh, just uh, eager to jump in and uh, join me in this conversation with my distinguished guests. I'll ask him to introduce himself, and then we'll take it away. All right. I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University, uh, the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, columnist at Newsweek. And um, yeah, you know, April 14th is also uh, Ruination Day. This is the, the anniversary of Lincoln's assassination. So big day, you know, we don't commemorate it. But, uh, you know, speaking of the party of Lincoln, so Tim Scott... <laughs> <laughs> good transition there <laughs> Tim Scott oh my gosh so this is like this is like episode of Veep stuff right here I mean you know, so one day one day it's uh, I support a 20 week nationwide ban and it's like okay so aka Roe um, are, you, are you for restoring Roe v. Wade um, and then it's uh, and then he's walking up and then I'll sign the most conservative legislation that can make it out of Congress um, and there's a way of reading that where it's like, wink, wink, I know this is not getting out of Congress, right? Like, I know that a a strict abortion ban is not getting through Congress. Um, And so I'll sign the most conservative one that'll come out of Congress, which is not an abortion ban. But um, I think the bottom line is that, well, first of all, Tim Tim Scott is not going to be the nominee for Billy Boy. Sorry. Um, No one one knows who he is. Um, And uh, I I just don't see someone with any kind of, you know, liberal fingerprints in his past, uh, getting through the, the MAGA gauntlet of the Republican primary. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, he's too, I'd like, he's too like nice and sane to, to be the Republican nominee for president. You know what I mean? It's like not, he, he, every time I see him speak on TV, I just, you just like want to pull him aside and be like, buddy, can we get you out? You know, like I've got a, you know, I've got a bus idling for, you know, for, for people who are fleeing the Republican party and, and we can deprogram you. Um, I, I know it's the only way to be an elected official statewide in South Carolina is to join the Republicans, but like, you don't have to do this to yourself, you know, just cash out, become a lobbyist. Um, but I, I think it's, a, it's a sign that, I mean, whoever, like any serious contestant for the nomination is, is going to have to sign on to a six week national abortion ban, which is extremely unpopular. Um, and this is, it's just, a, it's just another way of thinking about how much trouble the Republican party is in next year because of the Dobbs decision. Still, it is not, this issue is not going away. It is not going to recede into the background. I don't think it's going to be eclipsed by anything else, um, because the courts keep doing crazy things. And, um, perhaps more importantly, Republican state legislatures keep doing just, totally deranged stuff like Idaho trying to prevent people from 
getting abortions in different states and um, just just taking actions that are in violation of all the understandings of what it means to be the United States, right? Um, seeking to exert sovereignty and jurisdiction over other states. It's just, uh, it already rubs people the wrong way. Um, I think it's the reason Democrats did well, well, better than expected last year. Let's not say well. Um, it's, it's the reason we almost kept the House, Ben. Um, and, um, and you can see, I mean, you can see the trouble that they're going to run into, which is Tim Scott's no, no, he's nobody's fool, right? He, he knows that a six week abortion ban is, is going to be the centerpiece of the national campaign for president in 2024. Um, it's, you know, even if it's Joe Biden, every once in a while, he'll remember to say the right thing. It'll come out the wrong way. I, we can be sure that it'll come out the wrong way. Uh, he'll, he'll, he'll be like, you know, I'm folks, I am. 100% in favor of, a, no, wait a second. No, I'm, I'm against, <laughs> what's, my, what's my position? Um, so, uh, but uh, you can, you can already see him twisting and squirming, you know? I, so DeSantis just signed a, a six week abortion ban. It's like, they all are just sort of marching to their own deaths in, in ways that are really, it's like very puzzling to me that, that they, they have to do these things. Um, I, I would think that, some candidate for the Republican nomination would make a stand and say 15, you know, something that would have seemed crazy three years ago, but 15 weeks, you know, um, at least some sort of an attempt to get closer to what the actual center of public opinion about this stuff is, which is that there was a supermajority in favor of Roe. Roe was a compromise, um, right? Like it, it represented the midpoint between different conceptions of these things. And it's just, it's a little bit shocking to me that you, like, no one can find that lane. It's like, are there no street lamps there? You know, do we need to highlight the the stripes in the middle of the road so you guys can find the lane to like not alienate uh, two thirds of the women in the country lane? <laughs> Does anybody want that lane? Um, it seems like they don't. So they're not going to have it, I guess. Like if some, if they can, if the, if the political pressure is so strong, that they can make Tim Scott, who's probably polling at like 0.04%, walk back a completely anodyne statement um, in, in, in the matter of like 24 hours, no one is going to be able to get through this, this, this primary season with anything but six weeks or a total ban or, or like, you know, the next stage is a fetal personhood. Um, and so that's going to come up in the primaries and they're going to have to talk about what they want to do with the next Supreme Court opening. It's going to come up in the general election. You know, what would you do if, uh, you know, Sotomayor and uh, Kagan are not like that young, you know, like what would you do if something Sotomayor is not in great health? So it's like, what, what would you do if there was an opening? Right. Um, and they're going to have to say, yeah, I'd appoint another Amy Coney Barrett and we would not just outlaw abortion. And we're going to go after um, birth control next or whatever it is, you know, just the, just the, the zany antics of MAGA. Um, and, uh, Tim Scott, you are not going to be the president. Sorry, buddy. Neither am I. So it's no, it's no shame. You know, not to hang your head. But. No. Yeah. Uh, except he wants it and you don't. Uh, and, um, so we're going to get into uh, your latest, uh, column in Newsweek, a uh, great column. It was, uh, which gets into, uh, the federalist issue, uh, at play here. Uh, and the whole notion and states' rights issues as well as the Republican Party says anything and does anything at the moment, uh, it, <laughs> whatever's convenient at that moment. Um, but I just cannot allow this to pass. I sent you a text earlier this week, so I'm going to chide the New York Times as we frequently do on this show for not giving David Ferris credit. You, one of the books that you wrote a few years ago, "The Kids Are All Left," which was an analysis of voting patterns uh, in this country that showed uh, that younger voters of, uh, are more or, less, more or less of the progressive persuasion. We'll call them progress, progressives for the sake of this uh, discussion. Uh, and uh, that the Democratic Party should move left uh, to attract those voters and keep them. Uh, and that the Republican Party is in trouble because they um, uh, haven't, they're moving the opposite direction. The New York Times wrote a story about it this week, I want to say, that it was the exact theme that you laid out. Of course, they didn't give you any credit. <laughs> they never will. But it was like they discovered it for the first time. Wait a minute. We just discovered this. 
Young people are more liberal than their parents. Oh, breaking news. Uh, <laughs> so I just have to chide the New York Times. You guys, man, I don't know. Sometimes you're a parody of yourself. Uh, we saw it on hand here in Chicago in our own mayoral election uh, where Brand- uh, Brandon Johnson was victorious over uh, Paul Vallis. And again, the younger people showed up at a greater uh, numbers than they had been voting. And uh, I think that's probably why one of the, well, there's many reasons why Brandon Johnson uh, won. But we're going to specify abortion, but you, you've you laid out a whole slew of issues that uh, the Republican Party is dug themselves into a hole in uh, that alienate uh, younger voters having to do with the environment, uh, race relations, and obviously abortion. Are there any others that you can think of offhand? Climate change is a huge one. Um, I, you know, if you spend any time in a room with young folks these days, uh, they're they're amped up about this issue. Um, not not just because they consider it an imminent and existential threat, but they I think that they're really puzzled by why their elders have not tackled it in, in the way that they think that they should. Um, but yeah, they really you know they really care. I mean, they can see you know they can see what's happening out there. Uh, they can see the changes in the weather the weather patterns. Um, and they're, I, you know, you have to think about what it's like to think that you have most of your life in front of you. Um, and they don't want to live in a world where we're going to hit three or four degrees warming. And so that's a big one. A lot of, it's a lot of the, the cultural stuff is, you know, cultural. I hate it when people call abortion culture war stuff. It's like, it's the most material thing that you could think about. Um, but anyway, you know, for the sake of shorthand, these, these social issues are where you see the sharpest breaks between young, young folks and older folks. Um, and the, there, you have some divides on economic matters too. Um, younger people are are more left than we are on on economic issues. They're not exactly like Maoists, you know. But uh, <laughs> but you know, there's there's much higher support for for national health care among young people. Um, there's there's much more support for for free higher ed or subsidized higher ed. Um, you know, just think about the you know the kinds of issues that young people would care about that confront them every day. Um, sort of wealth inequality and um, housing affordability is a big issue with young people um, because we've left them a world <laughs> without affordable housing in it. Um, so, the, yeah, I mean, just from up and down the board, I, there's not like a single issue where where polling finds young people are more conservative than older people. Um, and when I when I wrote the book, the, my my big discovery, I couldn't when I was researching the book, I, could, I honestly couldn't believe that nobody had written it yet. Um, but the young people have been voting left of the country, um, sharply left of the country in every single election since 2002. And um, people who think that has always been true are wrong. Um, like young people went for Reagan uh, at a higher rate than, than some other age cohorts. Young people went for Nixon. The, um, you know, in the culture, the boomers are all these like leftists who went to um, – Woodstock and, um, you know, free love and everybody, I say like the, the, in the imagination, the entire generation lived on hate Ashbury, but, um, <laughs> boomers are actually quite conservative and always have been. Um, they just didn't, you know, the conservative ones didn't get all the press attention. So anyway, I'm rambling a little bit, but, um, you know, at the, at the bottom line is Republicans have a major demographic problem because these people are not in fact getting more conservative as they age. Um, millennials are, are, are just about as left as they were 15 years ago. Um, and so they're really, I think, hanging their hat on the idea that once people, you know, buy a, a house or an apartment or and acquire property and children, that they're going to become right wingers. And it's just, it's just not true. Well, they're also hanging their hat on uh, the notion that uh, even if they lose the younger vote, even if they lose the majority, even if they lose elections, uh, they will never concede. Uh, and they will use uh, whatever power they have to put into uh, uh, on the on the bench uh, radical conservatives uh, who will make any rulings uh, that will reinforce their notion of where the country should go, even if it's a very minority view. Uh, and that brings me to your uh, latest column, which is uh, I urge everybody to read it. It's really well written, <clears throat> and uh, it's typical what i call gallows humor of david ferris somebody said that uh, he liked our show because we're always 
<laughs> indulging in gallows humor. Uh, yeah, you're probably right there. But um, I'll just read to you, uh, uh, David, a couple paragraphs from your own uh, essay, and then you just take it away, do a riff on it. Uh, you're talking about the um, the recent ruling, and you write, Kaczmarek's ruling preposterously arrogates to the judiciary the right to determine which drugs are safe, a power the courts plainly do not possess and have never before attempted to exercise. It makes a mockery of the idea advanced by Republicans in spectacularly bad faith that abortion policy has been returned to the states. And it is an ominous sign that the GOP's project to impose gender tyranny on the United States is just getting started. Because a different federal district court judge issued a competing ruling staying Kaczmarek's ruling for 17 blue plaintiff states, the case will likely end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. The issue will be taken up by the court's ill-gotten 6-3 majority of Fox News grandmas and grandpas who take their cues from billionaire (laughs) – I just can't make this stuff up – who take their cues from the billionaire Nazi memorabilia collectors who, at least in one case, cart them around on super yachts. A lot is packed into those two paragraphs. Uh, David Ferris, unpack it. Sure. I mean, I only have 900 words at Newsweek, so you have to you have to be able to pack as much in as you can to every single sentence, you know, just to make sure you get your money's worth. So, um, so yeah, what, what we're going to have here is a, a classic. Uh, it's called a circuit split, um, and that is when two appellate courts issue different rulings on the same issue. Um, it was a circuits a series of circuit splits that put. Uh, that put gay marriage before the Supreme Court. Um, you had some appellate courts ruling that other states have to honor uh, marriage certificates issued in, in states where it's legal, and you had other circuit courts issuing a different decision. And so the, the Supreme—that's a—that's a clear case where the Supreme Court is like, "This is what we're here for. <laughs> like, the law has to be clear." Um, and so the Supreme Court will step in and and almost certainly grant uh, grant cert to this to these to this issue. Um, and the Supreme Court, as you, as you may or may not know, Ben, um, is now controlled by um, reactionary, fundamentalist, partisan weirdos like Clarence Thomas, um, who I assume is just like so, still so bitter about the Anita Hill hearings um, that he has turned into just, um, he's just a grizzled old uncle that you would run into like at Thanksgiving. Um, he's just, his mind is deeply damaged by, by partisan media um, and and partisan hysteria and partisan vitriol. Uh, he's just an angry, bitter old man, and he wants to exact revenge on the Democrats. And he does it every time he's, every single time he signs onto a ruling. It's to punish the Democrats. Um, and so the, you know, the big news in the past couple of weeks has been his relationship with this billionaire uh, was it Harlan Crow? Of course, his name is Harlan Crow, right? Like, <laughs> you know, can't billionaires just have like normal names? You know, like like, yeah. like Steve Smith or whatever. Can't it be billionaire named Steve Smith? Like Harlan Crow, right? Yeah. Harlan Crow. Yeah. The really funny thing yeah. happened in the aftermath of this news, which is that um, a bunch of like conservative journalists who obviously are like drinking from Harlan Crow's trough all the time, um, like. It was so it's not just that that story broke. It was then people were like, oh, yeah, that, yo, Harlan Crow, the guy that collects Nazi memorabilia, that guy. And there's all these pictures of like, you know, Hitler stuff in his house. And um, like as if on cue, all of these conservative journalists whose entire livelihood depends on billionaires writing checks to like the Federalist and, and places like that are like, I, you know, I know I've been to one of Harlan Crow's weird gatherings and he is not a Nazi. OK, so the fact that he collects Nazi memorabilia and is obsessed with Hitler doesn't mean anything about him. He is as far from a Nazi as you could possibly be. You know, um, it's like a leftist being like, yeah, my collection of Stalin memorabilia and like crushed skulls from the Soviet road of bones doesn't mean anything about my politics. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> it's like, just, just, just crazy. So it's crazy that this is legal, you know? Um, it's it's crazy that the people can like buy presents for Supreme Court justices and like take them on trips. Um, we need a complete revision to the ethics rules that govern the Supreme Court. The real depressing thing is that they could catch Clarence Thomas 
um, with like a dead body in his trunk. Um, and he'd, he'd go in and be like, I, I did it. I, I did, I did the murder. Um, and Republicans would still not impeach him from the bench, um, under, under Biden because they know that he would be replaced by a liberal. So it's like, there's this, there's this kind of moral hazard on the Supreme court right now where the justices know that they can, they can push the envelope on ethical issues, not just issue bananas rulings that like upend social consensus and like send the country into like a, a, a multi-pronged political crisis, but they can do whatever they want. I mean, they're almost like diplomats with diplomatic immunity because no one will, no one will ever hold them accountable for anything. Um, just as like no one will hold presidents accountable because of partisanship. So, so there's that aspect of it. Um, and, uh, of course there's the issue at hand, which is this, this Texas, uh, fundamentalist um he's like a he's both a partisan lunatic and a fundamentalist like his ruling was full of right-wing language about abortion um like it called doctors abortionists um and uh what just a, a chemical abortion use the phrase chemical abortion um you know just all the all the buzzwords that the far right developed um in like testing and focus groups to make us think badly about any issues related to abortion. It's from the same school of, uh, of narrative framing as like late term abortion, right? Um, these are all, these are all concepts that, or uh, the death tax, right? These are, these are all concepts that are trotted out to advance right wing agenda items, um, using language that appeals to people's emotions. So, um, this judge has no right to do what he did, right? Like the, the, the Supreme court doesn't oversee the FDA, right? Like there's no constitutional issue here in terms of like, um, this, this Mifepristone, Mifepristone being legal or, or approved or not approved. Um, and the, in the fifth circuit, um, sort of upheld his ruling, um, saying it said like, you can't, it, it basically said like you were, we're staying the order to, to halt all distribution of this drug, but we are allowing some restrictions that were made more recently, uh, on changes that the the government made to how you can get it, you know, so uh, at, in the status quo, um, you can be, you know, you can have this drug mailed to you, which is obviously an issue now in the different states where abortion is legal. Um, you can get it up to uh, 10 weeks pregnant. Um, you can get it from a PA instead of a doctor. You know, anybody with <clears throat> prescription writing power basically can write you a prescription for this. And so the Texas appellate court has basically said has basically okayed those restrictions for the time being in advance of a hearing um and the supreme court of the united states just stayed the whole thing um and and restored the status quo until um until it can hear the case i assume um i just we were just sort of like reading headlines before the show started so i'm not um unfortunately i'm not sure exactly what they said uh or what the logic was but um the the little quick summary i read said this they didn't they didn't telegraph anything about how they might ultimately rule. They just said the, the laws about this drug are, are returned to the day before this lunatic issued his ruling. So um, anyway, the whole thing is a is a reminder of the consequences of of Trump's makeover of the federal judiciary, and and particularly his uh, his appointment of three uh, conservative zealots to the Supreme Court in four years. Got three picks in four years. Just unbelievable. So that's where we are. Um, that's where we are with the issue. And and I was very angry when I wrote this article. <laughs> and it it occurred to me um, that the probably the way to fight back against some of this stuff is to is to use some of the conservatives' judicial positions against them. Uh, and the part of their judicial philosophy is something called anti-commandeering doctrine, which is something that makes absolutely no sense according to to a, a, any rational reading of the U.S. Constitution. We have something called the supremacy clause, right? And the supremacy clause says, like, where state and federal law clash, federal law preempts state law. It's very clear that there's no ambiguity here, you know. Um, but in 1992, the Supreme Court just created out of thin air. <laughs> this idea that the federal government may not may not coerce states into into enforcing federal law where states 
where state and federal law clashes. Right? Like the federal, the federal government can send in the feds, right? They can send DEA agents in to shut down your local dispensary here in the great city of Chicago if they wanted to, which they don't <laughs> at the moment. But they cannot compel like CPD to go in and shut that dispensary down if, if Illinois has made it legal. Does that make sense? Um, so that's, that's the doctrine that they issued. It was originally a conservative sort of like vanguard theory to eviscerate the power of the federal government. Um, the, the big case that, that maybe some people know is, um, is Prince and it was about the Brady bill. Um, and it basically told states, uh, that the federal government can't force them to conduct background checks on gun, on gun buyers. So, um, it was a, it was a conservative push and it was, it was put through by a conservative court. Court's been conservative my entire life. Um, but in 92, it was, it wasn't this hard, right? But, um, but that hostility to federal power has always been there. Um, and so they have created and they have upheld repeatedly. This is, I will actually give them credit for this because it's one thing that they've been consistent about. Um, and not in partisan terms, like, um, during the Trump administration, if you remember, the Trump administration sued some of the sanctuary states and sanctuary cities. Um, and, they, you know, they sued um, California. Uh, there was a case called United States versus California. And they tried to, they basically tried to force California to, um, to enforce federal immigration policy, which at that time was like, deport anyone that you think you don't like the way they look. Um, and the Supreme Court didn't even take the case. Right. Like they were like, no, California's right here. Um, and California's position is not that they said, again, California is not saying like we, we nullify the federal law. California is like basically issuing instructions to its own law enforcement not to do these things. So my, my idea is to take that anti-commandeering doctrine and apply it to a whole bunch of different issues that the, that are likely to be, um, increasingly relevant as this court issues deranged decision after deranged decision after deranged decision. You know, like we're probably months away from the Supreme Court um, telling the states uh, that they have to allow people to, to carry guns without a permit, you know, um, and, uh, if, you know, you can conceal a gun anywhere you want. You know, like just stuff that clashes with a bunch of laws in blue states. Um, and it's and, and those decisions have the force of federal law, right? Um, and there's absolutely nothing stopping under a democratic administration, somebody like J.B. Pritzker just being like, you know what, you can't sell guns here. Uh, we're going to go shut down the gun stores and we're going to enforce uh, an assault weapons ban in Illinois. And we're going to uh, issue our own law enforcement instructions not to, um, not to enforce federal law about gun policy. And according to the, to the Supreme Court's own doctrine that it has affirmed like four times in the last 10 years, um, the only way, the only end run around that is to send, you know, like send in the military to, I don't know, open a gun store or something. Like what would they actually do? Right. Um, so it's like, again, like the, the, the dark genius of the Trump era, McConnell era Republicans is the way that they found like all the little soft spots in the constitution, all the little soft spots in the legal regime. Um, you know, we had that thing called the Hatch Act. Where you're not supposed to to use uh, um, public federal property as as part of a campaign, and then Trump held a bunch of like campaign events like on the White House lawn, <laughs> right? Um, and they were like, "Oh wait, I looked at the law. There's actually no enforcement mechanism, so I guess we're just we just don't care." Um, they're like, "What are you gonna do? Launch an ethics investigation?" Um, they 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 ignore subpoenas from Congress. They're like, "Yeah, I'm not just I, yeah, I'm just not gonna go." Uh, and just sort of gambling that the legal process will take longer than the political process. And they were right every single time. Um, and so this is a case where Democrats need to, like, these are big, important issues, right? Like reproductive autonomy is, is a human rights issue. Um, not getting murdered by like the nearest psychopath with access to a, enough firepower to gun down a British regiment. That, that to me is like a human rights issue. It's a quality of life issue. It's made something that makes me like not want to live in this country. Um, and like people like JB Pritzker and the Illinois state legislature have more power here than I think that they understand. 
um, according to this, again, the Supreme Court's own rulings on these questions, Illinois can do whatever it wants and just like dare the feds to come in and stop us. And that would get more complicated if we elected a Republican president, obviously. But I don't, I, I, I mean, God strike me down. It's really hard for me to see a path to, to the presidency for Republicans under, under the current conditions. Um, you have like an enduring backlash against Dobbs. Um, that is just, it's just going to be a, like an, like an anchor around the neck of every conceivable presidential candidate. Even if Donald Trump like is vaporized tomorrow morning and like never haunts us ever again. Um, this is an issue that's going to kill, that's going to kill the Republicans next year. Um, and so I'm, you know, of course a Republican can win, right. But I think it's much less likely than it was before Dobbs. Um, and every day, as you know, every day, like an old Republican takes their last breath and they are replaced in the voting pool by like a Marxist, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, I could go into that uh, to a political conversation really uh, easily, but I'm going to hold off and go back to the notion of, of federalism and the notion uh, that the federal government has. There's some responsibilities that only a federal government can have uh, if you want to protect the citizenry. And one of them has to do with regulating medications, drugs that we take. Uh, and that's the FDA's jurisdiction. I mean, if, you can't have 50 different FDAs and have any kind of guarantee uh, that people aren't being harmed by taking pills that are not good for them, just to put in the most basic terms. And yet this judge in Texas, this federal judge in Texas, has essentially said that FDA doesn't have the authority to do what the FDA is supposed to do. How could you have a civilization? You know, it's so funny. This is coming from the law and order party. I, I just got through with this mayoral election. We're, we're told over and over again, we need law and order. We need law yeah, and order. <laughs> How could you have law and order when there's no law or order uh, in, the, in the universe? You know, I mean, help me out here. Uh, do you think that's where the country is? No, you know, on this, yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not where the country is at all. Um, but you know, the law and order party only cares about law and order when it's to keep the right people down. I mean, you saw what Greg Abbott did this week. So there was a guy who was convicted in Texas of like gunning down a black lives matter protester, um, who, who was armed. Okay. But like a, a jury convicted this guy unanimously of murder. And before, before the ink was dry on the decision, Abbott was like, I'm going to pardon him. You know, so it's like law and order, except if you want to kill left-wing protesters, you know, like that's just, a, that's just like an invitation to go kill left-wing protesters and go get pardoned for it. Like there's not enough money in the world for me to go to left-wing protests in, in a red state right now, because like my fear would be someone like this is just going to like go on a killing spree or drive his car into the crowd. Um, and Greg Abbott will be like, well, you're a free man. So, no, it's, it's, it's not where the country is. And um, in terms of federalism, Ben, I got to tell you, <laughs> I've been teaching federalism for, for seven, eight years now. And this, this Constitution is such like a stupid mess. It's, it's, like, it's unbelievable that they got everyone to agree on this thing because it's, it's just so many things are just like contradictions in terms. You know, you've got the supremacy clause, you've got the reserve clause. That's like all powers that are not explicitly granted to the federal government are reserved for the states. It's like, you can't, those are different. Those are different ideas. Could you pick one? No. <laughs> like, could you please pick one? Like, where does yeah. federal power yeah. begin and state power end? No one knows. Um, and states' rights have always been this, like, you know, kind of right-wing um, pushback against what they thought of as a liberal regime in, in Washington. Um and the, the reality is, like, um, states' rights, at, uh, unless we can win a bunch of national elections in a row and, and Clarence Thomas dies or something, state-level action might be the only way forward here, um, this, unless we can convince enough senators to pack the courts, and that's three years away. So the article is really about, okay, what do we do in those intervening three years? Okay, like, obviously, I hope that we are able to capture majorities big enough. To, to enlarge the, the Supreme Court, 
um, or, or threaten to enlarge the Supreme Court and sort of trick them into a compromise. But if we can't do that, that's years away anyway. What's the plan? You know, is the, is the plan to allow this like, um, illegitimate right wing majority that just like makes stuff up from case to case, um, to, to govern us for the next 15, 20 years? Um, because that's, that's just not acceptable to me. And the Biden administration just is like no fight on this stuff. You know, they're just like, let's just lie down and let it happen. Um, I mean, they're appealing the rulings, right? But like when, when AOC went on TV and was like, we should just ignore the ruling, <laughs> which is my position. Um, the Biden people were like, oh, no, 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 no. That would set a terrible precedent. And it's like, is there any decision that could come out of the Supreme Court where the sort of like Biden Democrats would be like, okay, this is the breaking point for me. <laughs> you know? Like the judiciary is out of control. Um, and I just, it's like, I just can't believe they haven't reached that point yet. Um, it's still the same usual suspects talking about court packing as there was two years ago. Um, and, uh, I just, yeah, I don't know what they have to do to, to get that last cohort of people on board for, for some radical change, but it's gotta happen. Well, all right, let's talk, talk about the, the concept of fighting back and we'll, uh, uh, concentrate on uh, one particular fight back. Uh, and you already mentioned this sort of in passing. Let's take a deeper dive into Clarence Thomas. So Clarence Thomas is, is pretty much violating all the basic rules right now. And he's arguing uh, in his press statements that these rules aren't specifically codified, so there are no rules to vi violate, and he's doing what he wants, which gets into this the whole Byzantine argument of what the rule is. Is he violating it? Let's. The, but these are just the, all the conventions. If if you put aside whether the rule exists or not, the notion that a uh, federal uh, a Supreme Court judge could uh, take these kinds of gifts that he's uh, accepting uh, from this billionaire in Texas who is also funding the groups that come before the right-wing judge uh, with their cases. The notion that that is not an obvious conflict of interest uh, and that he does not need to report the conflict of interest so he can allow the conflict of interest to more or less remain buried. And then when it's finally revealed, just to shrug and say, Nah, doesn't really apply to me. Uh, I'm going to uh, just continue to ignore this. Uh, to me, is like throwing down a challenge to the, the other party, the Democrats. You're either going to make him play by the rules, uh, or you're not. And we saw in Tennessee <laughs> how Republicans deal with "quote unquote" rule breakers. They toss those two state reps, the two justices, right out. They didn't. What they didn't blink. So here's my question to you: uh, If you were advising Richard Durbin, who is the head of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, uh, Senator from Illinois, uh, would your advice be to him to immediately start holding hearings uh, into Clarence Thomas's uh, improprieties, if you will? Absolutely. My first piece of advice to Dick Durbin would be to retire. Um, but if you won't retire, please, please hold some hearings. D Dick Durbin's got to go. I'm sorry. Um, it's, the dude is just, it's just another living relic from, from the era of bipartisanship that never existed, but exists in Dick Durbin's mind. So, um, he's, he's not like the worst, you know, um, he's, and he served his country and he's served Illinois, but he's, he's old and it's time to make way for somebody with some new ideas. Um, and somebody who, who doesn't have to think about whether we should hold hearings about, they would just hold the hearings. Um, and, and so obviously they should hold hearings. Obviously they should subpoena Clarence Thomas, um, and bring him before Congress and ask him to explain why he's, uh, why Harlan Crow bought property from him. Um, ask him to explain why he was going on trips with Harlan Crow. Ask him to explain what conception of your role as a Supreme Court justice says that you go run around palling around with like partisan billionaires who bankroll every like horrible thing in the country. I'm going to have to go get my, my daughter for a second. So just to give me, bear with me. Um, so that's, that's my advice to, uh, to Dick Durbin. Okay. Is like, um, they like Republicans would already have held 
like 15 hearings about this. <laughs> I mean, if the, if the shoe were on the other foot, like, um, if, 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 uh, Elena Kagan was like going on vacations with George Soros, um, <laughs> right? Oh my God. Like, can you imagine? Yeah. They already use, oh, they already Lord. talk about George Soros. Like every other word out of their mouth It's like the globalists and George Soros. Um, and it's like, you know, we got to turn Harlan, Harlan Crow into a dirty word too. Um, but just that the shoe was on the other foot, there'd be no question they'd hold hearings. I think the, you know, in those hearings would be to get the stuff on the record, to make it a political issue. I think to contribute to some momentum for ethics reform rules, which I, I think should in theory be something that both parties would support. Um, but they're not going to get rid of Thomas, unfortunately, because the same impeachment rules that apply to the president apply to the Supreme Court justices. So they, they need two thirds in the Senate. And uh, there is a better chance. Um, <laughs> there's a better chance of the Oakland A's winning the World Series this year than, than there is of, uh, of 67 senators voting to remove Clarence Thomas from the bench under a Democratic president. It's just it's not going to happen. So it's gross. Um, if this is an issue that you care about, there's a, I wrote about this a little bit in the, my first book. There's an organization called Fix the Court um, that has this term limits proposal, but also has all sorts of other ideas um, about how to make the Supreme Court a more modern institution. And um, it's just it's just unbelievable to me how much power we have granted these nine people, you know, um, and how little meaningful oversight there is of them and their institution and its inner workings, how little Congress has cared about these things. Um, and how, how, like just the, the, you know, just the, the assumption that it's like normal for like judges to be like these weird celebrities in, in our country and that they in some ways have more power than Congress does. It's just nuts. You know, uh, I, I just, I hope this is a wake up call for a lot of people that like, we, we need to rethink the institution altogether from, from ground up. Uh, yeah. And you've been saying that just so, uh, so folks know that David and I have been having these conversations on microphones for about six years now, or five years, I lost track of time. And you've been consistent on this subject from the get go, uh, as, uh, your daughter agrees. Uh, folks, if you could just see, this is one of the cutest things I've ever seen. Uh, David is going, is, is explaining the Supreme Court politics while holding an infant. <laughs> she gets it. Yeah. It's just like, that's messed up. He, how can you do that? You know? Yeah. Six weeks old. So let, so let's leave the six week old, uh, with a little, uh, good news, I guess. Uh, we'll close with, um, Tennessee and Chicago, and uh, get your thoughts. Uh, so we obsessively been talking on this show about uh, Brandon Johnson's election in Chicago from really a Chicago perspective for the last pff, every day since he was victorious. Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. You're, you're not from Chicago. You live here now, but uh, uh, you have some... Uh, distance from this city so from sort of a a national perspective if you could what what is the significance of brandon johnson's victory in chicago i, I mean i and I, I say this as i voted for him okay so grant of salt i really i really like him so so far i'm sure he'll crushingly disappoint me before too long but um <laughs> I, I think this is potentially a really significant development because when you think about big city urban politics in America, you you simply haven't seen anyone like this elected, uh, at least in a major city. You know, the closest analog I can think of is the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, and, and he's so constrained by the right wing legislature there. His name is escaping me at the moment. It'll come to me. Um, but he's a he's a true progressive in the, in the mold of of Johnson. But most in most other big cities, we they, they keep electing these like squishy neolibs you know like uh eric adams and uh in new york and and what have you and and so when i look at chicago um you know, what i see is like a city that has the reputation of being ultra liberal you know ultra left but whose actual policies from from education to to policing um to to the way that we fund things and what we fund and where we fund it is like profoundly conservative 
Um, and by conservative, I mean shitty. So, <laughs> um, and, and so Vallis was another, you know, creature in this mold. I don't know what to make of Lightfoot at this point, And who cares because she's gone? Um, I don't, she wasn't the worst person in the world, right? Um, and I would have voted for her against Vallis, but she wasn't going to represent a meaningful challenge to the status quo. And so it feels to me like Johnson is a, is a challenge to the status quo in a way that we haven't seen here. Not, and not in my time in Chicago. Um, and I don't know enough about the history to, to know what happened during the Harold Washington administration, but it feels a little bit similar in the sense of like, okay, here's someone that really wants to shake things up and not just, you know, not Lori Lightfoot's like, I'm going to issue some new ethics rules. <laughs> um, but someone who like, <laughs> yeah, we're going to bring the light in. Um, <laughs> but someone who's like, uh, some of the things we do here are crazy, you know? Um, like all the other candidates were, were like forced to walk back their criminal justice positions. And, and Johnson did a little bit of walking back here and there. Right. But like fundamentally, um, he would not budge from treatment, not trauma. Right. He would not budge from the idea that, that, um, that the way that we're like throwing more cops at the problem of crime in Chicago is not the answer. Um, and so that's a big thing. The other big significant thing about the Chicago race to me was that it wasn't in its own weird way. It was a national race um, because of the way that Republican psychopaths have turned our city into like this weird lightning rod for crime, even though we're not even in, like the top 25 crime per capita in, in the U.S. city wise, that just the raw data is so shocking to them. Um, and because, you know, Chicago didn't experience quite the same kind of reduction in crime as like New York and L.A., um, we became President Trump's favorite punching bag, you know, uh, move Chicago liberals and know oh, it's a hellhole, hellhole city, like such that like the Republicans own candidate for governor of the state of Illinois repeatedly came here to a place where he has to get some votes and called it a hellhole. Um, and it was very reassuring. It was like so cheering to me that the people of Chicago given a chance. And I like to say we were given a chance to discuss the matter amongst ourselves. Right. Like, um, I don't know what Paul Vallis is anymore, Republican, Democrat, I mean, who knows, right? But like, um, the reality is like, this is a democratic city. Um, and I know I don't like um, murder and aggravated assault and robbery any more than anybody else does. Um, and we all want a safer city. And so this election and crime was very salient, you know, according to polls, it was like the biggest issue on people's minds. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that's partly a media creation, but it's partly a reality that, like, even if things are not as out of control as Republicans want to say they are, there's still there's this could be a safer place, right? That would be, be great. Um, and so, given the opportunity to talk about it amongst ourselves, we rejected this reactionary narrative about Chicago. We we rejected the reactionary position um, that the only way to to fight crime is to you know is to mint new cops. Um, like a, like we're at a ballistics factory trying to trying to supply Ukraine, just like more cops, more prisons, more prison terms, longer prison terms, but more people in prison. And there's people on the right that are like, yeah, man, I mean, like, just put, put more people in jail, we'll have less crime. Like, which is a complete misunderstanding of the trajectory of crime in America. But anyway, that was the, those are the two things that stuck out to me about Brandon Johnson was, you know, one, um, you have somebody that that really uh, believes in some in some fundamental change. Whether he'll be able to get it through, whether it will work, I have no idea. Um, but it's it's really cool to see somebody that's like, let's try something different, right? Like it's not like our our cop budget is small here, Ben. You know, um, it's not it's not like we're understaffed. Like there's plenty of cops out there. Um, so let's try something different. And then um, just so you know, the people of the people who are actually living through these things, say, okay, I hear what you're saying about my city. I, I hear what I hear your narrative about crime, and I I reject it. I would have loved it. To be rejected a little more decisively. <laughs> well, right. we're, you know, a win uh, is a win is a win. A win is a win. Yeah, it's, I know. It's I uh, I'm going through this um, uh, this whole internal debate, uh, which I share occasionally on the show uh, about uh, white people in Chicago uh, and how uh, how do I put this? Strange they are. Um, and historically, this is the patterns have not changed. They are been strange uh, since uh, since for years and years. Uh, so 
somehow or other, the same white people in the city of Chicago who cannot stand Donald Trump uh, and would never, ever dream of voting for Donald Trump uh, voted happily, couldn't wait to get to the polls for a what I call a MAGA sympathizer uh, in terms of Paul Vallis, because clearly what he's been for the last two years. And yet their neighbors on the north side of Chicago, I talked about this in an earlier show today, their neighbors uh, who live in the same conditions, David, the absolute same conditions in terms of crime, there's no difference. If you live in a north side neighborhood in the city of Chicago, if you're an Asian American or a Hispanic American or a white American, the crime rate's the same. Somehow or other, <laughs> the Asian American voted for Johnson and the white American who probably participated in anti-Trump, some of them, anti-Trump marches, et cetera, and so forth, voted for Vallis. And I like, I come away with this notion that our country can only be saved. You can't depend on white people to save the country. No way. <laughs> You can't. You just. You can't. You just, <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it. Go ahead. Yeah. The way I think of the cities, you know, <clears throat> is they give these like preposterous margins to Democratic candidates in federal elections. You know, eighty-five to fifteen, eighty-eight to twelve, um, and a lot of those votes come from these white people um, who, you know, who own who own houses and are are relatively well off compared to a lot of the people in the country. Um, and they're, they're more than happy to march off and, and reject, um, you know, gender tyranny at the federal level. But when it comes to the sort of like granular changes that would be required to create a more equitable city to live in, they don't want to do it. You know, like it's, it's like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I bet you like half of the people that have like hate has no home here signs on their lawn, um, voted for Vallis because they wanted a property tax cut, you know, um, and so at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's hard to get people to do things that are not in their self-interest. Um, and there's, there's a system here, you know, you feel it immediately when you move to the city, it's like, there's these, some of these neighborhoods are, are safe and well taken care of, and they pave the potholes over in five seconds. Um, and some neighborhoods get no investment. Um, some neighborhoods have terrible roads just always. Um, and, uh, you know, you, what I found cheering about this election was it was the first time since I've been here, and I think the, f the first really big city election in a long time, where people seem to have voted, you know, they're like, I want Johnson, even if it means some new taxes on me, right? Like, I want a better city, even if I have to pay a little bit more for it, um, which is, which is I think of as a very progressive position, right? Like, um, I would rather be taxed then like get have to get like um red light camera fines to fund the city um you know i would rather i would rather just pay higher taxes and not have to do what my wife and i are doing right now which is like figure out which stupid insurance company is going to pay for our night in the nicu after our baby was born um like i would i would pay for that um and so i and people are if, if we want to bring in a kind of like a european social democracy to america or to any place in america there has to be a critical mass of people who are, who are willing to take that chance to say, like, I want to spend money to address these problems rather than just like cutting taxes and throwing cops on the street and hoping it fixes itself because it's not fixing itself. Uh, and by the way, I assure you, we'll close with this. Having lived through the daily years in the 90s when Paul Vallis was revenue director for daily and having lived through Paul Vallis's reign at the Chicago Public Schools. And I do not want to relitigate the election. It is in the past, but it just always irritates me that uh, Paul Vallis's theme was that he was going to cut taxes and hire more cops. I'm like, Chicagoans, you can't do both of those, you know? And, uh, and somehow or other, one more time, like the Hispanic voters in Chicago, the black voters in Chicago, the Asian American voters in Chicago, they understood this. <laughs> and my beloved white brothers and sisters in the city of Chicago, cut taxes and hire more cops and pay for it magically. Oh, Lord, what a city. What a country. Uh, 
All right, David Ferris, keep up the good work. Excellent, excellent, excellent column. And like I said, darkly funny uh, in this week's <laughs> really dark. You're in a strange place. You're the so lucky to have this beautiful newborn daughter, and yet your mind goes to some pretty dark places when you're writing those. Columns. Yeah, she's got to live in this stupid world, man. We got to take it a better place before it's too late. You know, I look good. She's yeah, cute. Before it's too late. She deserves. Yeah, she, she is cute. There, you know? <laughs> And what a great temperament this kid has. She's putting up with the two of us having this conversation uh, and is absorbing it. And one day she will sit on the Supreme Court. All right. That's um, that's all we have for uh, for today. Thank you very much, David Ferris. Uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care.